Good evening, all. I was standing there, but I didn't want to interrupt that before she got to the end of Unbeldi. Hi there. Well, welcome. How many of you are seeing Madame Butterfly for the first time in your lives here? Oh, wonderful. Okay. Uh, now, uh, second question has nothing to do with Madame Butterfly. How many of you saw the magic flute? <laughs> Most of you. Did you like it? Yeah. yeah. No, I was, it's not an applause line. It's uh, I, just to point, to point to the fact that tonight's experience will be so different uh, and yet just as valuable, and that's the magic of opera, that you go into one world one day and you go into another world the, the, uh, the next day, and those two worlds are uh, complete while you're, explaining, while, while you're experiencing it. Okay, if you've never seen Madame Butterfly, the storyline is very simple. You're going to understand it. Um, approximately uh, beginning of the... 20th century, 1900, let's say, uh, an American naval officer comes to Japan, and as was the custom, um, he takes a wife. Uh, the wife, uh, he signs a contract for marriage for 999 years, but he can, uh, it's renewable every month, and he can break the lease every month. Right? It's a bad deal, it's a bad deal, uh, but this is, was not uncommon, it was true. So here's this guy, his name is Pinkerton, Benjamin Franklin Pinkerton. Uh, he's young. Uh, he's a cavalier, he's thoughtless, he's a tenor. <laughs> Unlike most tenors, way down deep, most tenors ha win our sympathy and keep it because that was the traditional role for the tenor. He is amongst the most, uh, uh, his behavior is odious. Uh, maybe he's not, he doesn't, he's not ill-intentioned, he's just spoiled, thoughtless, and imperial. And the idea of the, um, the latent imperialism in this story is very important. We'll come back to that shortly. So Cho Chosan is the hero, and she is the center of the opera from the beginning to the end. And she is a character who develops psychologically in an amazing way. She starts out as a 15-year-old geisha girl and will end, of course, becoming a tragic heroine um, and will have the... Uh, will have the courage to commit harikari as her as as she has only several choices and that's the one she feels is the most honorable. Uh, she's a great character. Everybody else around her is Orbit. Um, there's an American consul who is a very good man and he uh, advises young Pinkerton to take this more seriously than he is and of course he's still around there to see the results um, later on because there is a child several years later. Um, Pinkerton will return at the end, there will be a confrontation, um, and all will come out. There's a loyal servant, her name is Suzuki, she's the servant of Chocho-san, and there is a marriage broker, I think that's a, a nice term for him, procurer might be a better term, and there's another four-letter word, but I can't think of it right now. Uh, so he's a bad guy, Goro, all right? Um, there is an uncle of Chocho-san who is a religious man, he's a bons or bonso, uh, Chocho-san has converted to Christianity in order to marry Mr. Pinkerton, and uh, the Bonsa finds that out, and all of her, her relatives curse her um, for having abandoned them and for having abandoned their religion. So, there you got it. That's most of the story. All right. However, it's a very, this, there's a tremendous amount of subtlety, uh, not just in the story, but in the opera. Now, um, how did Puccini come to this story? It's a long, long line. I'm going to give it to you right now. Um, we are in 1888, and there's a man named Pierre Lotti. He's a French naval officer himself, um, and he is, um, his, he is writing a story uh, very similar to this story. Let me, let me just tell you about it. Um, there's a 35-year-old man. 
him, presumably, and a young Kiku-san or Okane-san. And this is, a, this is a marriage that is consented by the parents. The parents consent. It's arranged. The local police register this marriage. And when the uh, sailor inevitably leaves, and every young bride knew that the, the sailor would leave, she's allowed to remarry any number of times. Very, uh, it was a very, uh, very expensive for the visiting sailors, um, but very profitable for uh, everybody on the Japanese side. That's in 1888. Several years later, 1893, there's a Frenchman, another one, André Messager. André Messager is a composer of considerable note. Uh, he decides to write the same story. Her name was in, by the way, the original was Madame Chrysanthème. That's chrysanthemum in French. Right? Um, so he writes something that's called a comédie lyrique. Now you tell me. Co lyric comedy, that's what it's called. Um, we're in Paris, 1893. It's reproduced in 1901 and 2 with Mary Garden singing. Brussels, 1906. Montreal, 1912. Chicago Opera Company in Chicago and New York in 1920. So it was around a long time after Madame Butterfly. Madame Butterfly is 1903. So, now, um, this is a much more cynical story. Um, there, uh, uh, there's a, the man is named Pierre. Um, and I just read you the end of this, uh, this, the synopsis. After an interlude out at sea, Pierre, who has left Japan now, reads Chrysanthème's letter in which she wrote that although she was smiling when they parted, he should remember when far away that in Japan that there are women who love and cry. He tosses the lotus flowers she had given him into the sea and asks to forget his Japanese marriage. Very cynical. Okay, now there's another man, John Luther Long. You with me? All right, now we're up to, uh, now we're up to uh, 1898. He, uh, he publishes a short story um, in a magazine. Uh, he described himself as a sentimentalist and a feminist and proud of it. Uh, he publishes this in a, in a magazine called Century Magazine. And um, the story is pretty much as you know it, um, although it's gonna take a few turns still. Um, but this is the way it ends, and this is very significant. Uh, Pinkerton has returned to, to Nagasaki, but he does not come up to see Chocho-san, and she's aware of this. A week later, they see, uh, they, she sees a passenger steamer in the harbor. On the deck is Pinkerton with a young blonde woman, and she and Suzuki wait all night in vain. The next, mo the next morning, his warship is gone from the harbor. Uh, distraught, she visits the consul, his name is Sharpless, to ask if he had written Pinkerton and why he had left without seeing her. To spare her feelings, Sharpless tells her that he had indeed written Pinkerton, who was on his way to see her, but had many other duties to perform, and the ship was suddenly ordered away to China. Chocho-san is sad but relieved. Then a blonde woman from the steamship enter, enters, the blonde woman, I should say, the blonde woman from the steamship enters the office, identifies herself as Pinkerton's wife, and asks the consul to send the following telegram to her husband. In other words, Cho Cho San is still in the consul's office, and she hears this. Just saw the baby and his nurse. Can't we have him at once? He's lovely. Shall see the mother about this tomorrow. She was not at home when I was there today. Expect to join you Wednesday week, um, uh, and may I bring him along? Adelaide, which is her name. 
In despair, Chocho-san rushes home. She bids farewell to Suzuki and the baby and shuts herself at her room to commit suicide with her father's sword. Her father, incidentally, also had to commit suicide, always for honor. After the first thrust of the sword, she hesitates. Although she is bleeding, the wound is not fatal. As she raises the sword again, Suzuki silently enters the room. Suzuki's her servant. Uh, takes the baby, pinches the baby to make him cry. Chocho-san lets the sword drop to the floor. As the baby crawls onto Chocho-san's lap, she dresses her wound. She starts, the story ends with the words, when Mrs. Pinkerton called next day at the little house on the hill, it was quite empty. Very interesting. She does not commit suicide. And that's, uh, the story ends uh, with her simply disappearing. All right, there's another man now. His name is David Belasco. You may have heard of him. He was a, a famous impresario on Broadway. He was born in uh, 1853, died in 1931. He was born in San Francisco, died in New York. Uh, he, was known as, uh, he was known as the bishop, by the way, uh, because uh, he presented himself the bishop of Broadway. That was his nickname. He presented himself to the public as an ascetic clad in religious garb, um, and thus the nickname. He was often cited as the inventor of the phrase and the first practitioner of the casting couch. I did not know that, um, that he had invented the phrase casting couch. So, but I have to believe it because I don't know if, uh, I don't know if there's anybody else who's claimed that. That he was the first practitioner, I doubt very much. Uh, that's been around for centuries, if not millennia. Now, um, here trouble, has be trouble is the boy, he now becomes a girl. And the most important change um, is that, uh, whereas in the short story, Chocho-san um, decides to uh, live and take her baby, she commits suicide in Belasco. Now, Puccini saw Belasco's play in London, and he immediately, uh, he immediately grabbed onto it, knowing that that was for him. And so he, uh, of course, recast it, but the basic, the basic line is all, is all there. Now, um, I, you know, I write articles. You'll find this thing in your, in your program. If you want to find the long version, the short version is in the program, you go online, you go to the LA Opera website. And then you can struggle with it for a half an hour until you find the article. I did the other day. I was then told that um, the server was down, and it's now back up. Um, this opera, uh, this um, article is called Puccini, Melodrama, and the Ubiquitous Feminine. Um, and I start out just explaining that uh, Puccini's operas are almost exclusively about, the, about a woman. In other words, uh, you can think of it, La Boheme, Manon Lescaut, uh, of course, Madame Butterfly, Tosca, Suor Angelica, uh, Turandot, down the line, he's fascinated with the woman. And not only his life, not only his operas, but his life as well. Now, as a composer, uh, he embraced the theater. And uh, as a dramatist, he chose what he said, the suffering of little souls over the great, tragic, tragic, uh, grandiose, or transcendent. In other words, uh, this is not Wagner with gods. Uh, this is not Grand Opera from France with all of the stage machinery. There are no kings, there are no queens, there are no czars, there are no popes. It's about s little people like you and me. He wrote about one theme over and over, love, death, and erotic romantic desperation. As a man, he was melancholic by character and pessimistic by philosophy. Uh, the woman is, is his protagonist. 
the love, passion, devotion, desire, jealousy, nostalgia, yearning, and disappointment she feels and inspires. He writes in the third person, sympathizing always with her as she makes her way to her various tragic ends. He himself, this is my, of course, this is my, uh, this is my theory, is a secondary protagonist, and I mean Puccini is the secondary protagonist, infusing every drama with his psychological projections onto his women, scratching the surface, plumbing the depths, seeking the hidden source, and wrestling with himself is revealed over and over again. Now, if you want to know more, read the article. Uh, but the idea has been put forward that Puccini, this is on a Freudian level, had enormous attachment to women. At the same time, he had a cruel streak in him. And it has been remarked that the worse the tragedy, the crueler the situation, the more the soprano suffers, the more he was inspired. Think of the second act of Tosca as, a, as an example. Think of Jack Rance and the, the, the girl of the Golden West. Think of, uh, of Chochus on a Madame Butterfly. Um, that's a theory. Um, it's Freudian in nature, and it was based on the idea, more or less, that uh, he, he, he was a, I think he had five sisters, no brother, and his father died when he was very young. So he was surrounded by women who both doted on him and, of course, dominated him. So um, that's the theory. And that's the theory by which I will go on. I will, my contention is that even though Puccini writes all of his operas all over the world, he's there. Paris, he, four of his operas are in Paris. There's Rome in another one. Uh, there's Japan in another one. China in another one. Um, there's, uh, there's, uh, there are medieval. It's never about the here and now. The story, however, has that psychological unifying uh, theme, even though uh, incredibly, uh, incredibly theatrical, he was able to dress it up in different costumes. This opera is dressed up in pseudo-Japanese costumes. Now, what do I mean by pseudo? I mean that uh, we, have to, we have to bear in mind that this is an opera that is not Japanese. It is Japan viewed through European-Italian eyes at the end of the century. Now, at that time in history, the, uh, the fascination with the Orient was growing all over Europe because Japan had been opened. It had been closed for many centuries. Uh, there was all of a sudden chinoiserie. There was, uh, there was art. There were artifacts. There was a fascination with the exotic. Now, composers, artists, uh, Writers love the exotic because the exotic is interesting to us. You know, we all have our humdrum uh, lives every day, same, same old thing, same old people, same old thing, right? So we like something that's different. An exotic is, by definition, always different and should fascinate us. And so that's what is, that is what is in the fashion and that is what people wish to see. They want to see something that's different. So that's not Japanese, however. It's about as Japanese, let's see, he, he went and he, he, he did a lot of research, he found Japanese melodies and he incorporated them, so some of those things you're going to be hearing are actually Japanese melodies. Um, but it's very much a Westerner's, it's a Westerner's drama. Now, even though he is not sympathetic with um, Pinkerton, still Pinkerton is a, is a small representation of Puccini. Uh, Puccini's love life was as active, as the uh, dramatic, as the operas. Uh, um, he met, uh, young in his life, he met an unhappy wife. 
he had um, a mad affair with him until uh, her husband uh, shot uh, the, the husband of his lover, whereupon the marriage was dissolved. I think he went to prison and Puccini married. Her name was Elvira, but Elvira and he were not a, a peaceful match. They fought, she was very jealous, and she had very good reason to be jealous. He, wa he was uh, constantly attracted to women, um, his singers, his sopranos, the people who worked for him. He was, in fact, uh, an erotic, pure and simple. And so all of his operas have this character as well. Now, um, death on the stage. Most of us have grown up in a time when we like happy endings, and we were brought to go to the movies, and happy endings are, are, are the best fare because they sell well. I heard that directly uh, once from Michael Eisner, who was, of course, the head of Disney for years. He said, unhappy ending, we don't produce them. It doesn't have a happy ending, it doesn't sell. Now, that's been going on since Walt Disney. Uh, the happy ending is, has been a part of our culture. Um, but it was not a part of many other cultures. And so um, the melodrama and 19th century opera is very big into it has to end with a death. Now, oddly enough, the 18th century, this is going to include Mozart and Gluck, didn't, li didn't like people dying on stage. And so generally, you'll notice, even, I mean, Don Giovanni is sent down to hell, but we don't see him die. No, people don't die in those operas on stage. Um, but that changed in the 19th century, and so it, it moved on. And of course, Verdi, every opera, the soprano dies, almost without exception. And sometimes some others die along with her. Now, I've heard people say, oh, that story, such a downer. How can anybody like that? Well, I don't know. Downer isn't exactly what I think you should be calling, you know, great art. But uh, yes, downer, yes, tragedy is a part of life. Melodrama is a part of life. And the Italians, uh, uh, and to some degree the Germans, swam in those waters. Puccini, Verdi, and just about everybody else at, at that time. Now, what is not in much of those two centuries are politics. Uh, you were writing for the aristocracy or the court when you were Mozart or Gluck or Haydn, or, so you weren't writing anything political. You, you kept your mouth shut, you laid low. The censors were still functioning. Verdi had to fight with the censors all the way up until 1860. Uh, but even after that, he didn't write about politics, implicitly sometimes, but never explicitly. And Puccini comes from that. Puccini is not interested in politics. Uh, Madame Butterfly can be looked at from so many interesting angles, uh, from the angle of imperialism. This is what happens when great empires uh, take their navies and go and they basically conquer other lands. Uh, Miss Saigon is a good example of that in our own time. Uh, that's pol political, uh, but I don't believe it was Puccini's interest. Again, it's the personal trauma, the little people. Look, uh, you can look at this from a feminist perspective, and it absolutely is that. Uh, these are horrible, terrible men mistreating a woman. On the other hand, uh, Cho Cho-san is a, becomes a heroic woman. Uh, yes, she's a naive little geisha at 15, but three years later, uh, we see her strong-minded, determined, loyal. That's the big quality, loyal, 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 ready to contradict her, everyone in her surroundings, standing up against her family and refusing to give in uh, because she loves her husband. Uh, she is blasphemous. She refers to the the Japanese gods, pigri edobesi, 
lazy and obese. And she says, they don't do anything for you. Pray to them and they don't do anything. We see that she's capable of wit and uh, sarcasm when um, a new suitor comes from Prince Yamadori who's offered to marry her. Um, we see her wit. We see that she is capable of violence. She takes a knife to, um, to slit Goro's throat, but Goro gets away in time. Um, and of course, she has the power and the stamina to wait day after day, night after night, for this ship to appear and for her husband to return so that she can present him with his and her son. And when the final, when the final, uh, when it all becomes clear at the end, she has uh, a choice to uh, try to go back to her family, to try to become a geisha again, uh, or to choose death by honor. And she chooses the most difficult and the most courageous, and that is death by honor. She chooses um, to commit uh, harikari, and she has grown in three years. She's 18 years old when she dies. She has grown from a naive, uh, very sweet geisha into a very, very strong woman. Um, that's an, another feminist um, you know, viewpoint on Madame Butterfly. Uh, Madame Butterfly can be psychoanalyzed. You can psychoanalyze Pinkerton, you can psychoanalyze all, all of that. But the fact is that what Puccini wa liked and wanted was great, powerful theater about the uh, human conflicts of love uh, and life. Now, I brought my iPod, and I will start playing it for you. Um, this opera opens um, in high, high energy. It's the wedding day, and this is how it starts. Now, this will become a main theme, and it will run all the way through the first act. And it represents the house and all of its activities. See everybody scurrying about. And here is, listen to this. I'm going to back that up. This is a theme uh, called Nagasaki. This is uh, this is associated with the city where they live. Here it is. Four times. That's the Nagasaki. Now, Puccini likes to do this, to take a motive and then to put it all over the place as a sort of scenery. Um, you're familiar with La Boheme. You see, you'll recognize this, La Boheme, first act. And that will be ubiquitous for the entire first act. Here's another one you know, Johnny Schiffi. It's his way of setting the scene. Now, Puccini was a genius of the theater. He actually said, until he can visualize the scene and the characters, he can't write a note of music. Um, he, down to the smallest detail, he worked on his operas, and the smallest dramatic detail, and the theatrical details. Uh, th these, are all, these are all great examples of that. Bo Bohème, uh, Madame Butterfly, Tosca, the middle, these are the middle operas. Now, when we, when we finally meet a character, we're going to meet the Pinkerton, and we're going to meet Goro, the marriage broker, and here he is. And this little theme is Goro. 
And he's bowing and scraping. See the bow. And that's the big question. Pinkerton, il nido nuzial dove? Where's the marriage chamber? That's all he's interested in. He's not interested in the rest of the house. And then uh, Goro shows it to him, you know, sliding, sliding, uh, sliding uh, walls come in and out. Um, so we've met him, and now here's a little bit of the kind of Orientalism, the kind of um, music that is supposed to express the Orient. Delicate, the introduction of Suzuki the maid. Goro, of course. Obsequious and loathsome at the same time. Now, uh, Puccini's technique in almost all of his operas is to use the first act to set the scene. Uh, and as you think of La Boheme, for instance, there's the four boys there horsing around, Rodolfo, Marcello, Shonan, Colina. And in the middle of the act, Mimi arrives, and then the story starts. The first half, half of that is setting the scene. Uh, you can think of uh, Il Tabarro is built the same way. Halfway through the first, well, there's only one act. Halfway through the opera, the drama starts. Uh, so, Johnny Skiki starts when Johnny Skiki comes in, into the opera about two th uh, one third of the way into it. Madame Butterfly is just like that. We get a picture. We get a picture of the whole. That we get the house. Now we're going to get the consul is going to come in. We're going to see the wedding. We're going to see the relatives. Nothing's going to happen really until the uncle, the bond sponsor, shows up and tells everybody that Chocho-san converted to another religion and she should be cursed and they should all go home and never talk to her again. That's where the drama starts. And it's midway in the whole act. Now, you remember leitmotifs from Wagner? These are melodies, chords, uh, a combination of notes that represent uh, people, emotions, things, and they're used for memory. Puccini used them, he used them in this opera. Why did Puccini know all about them and use them? Because as a very young man, he was sent to Bayreuth by Ricordi Editions, that Ricordi who made the editions of all these operas, and to learn all about Wagner. And he came back and he actually wrote the piano reduction of the first piano score of Die Meisterzinger. So he knew intimately and admired Wagner. So he's, he's going to learn this. So now here's a few, uh, here's a few motives. This is the consul. This is, his name is Sharpless, and he's a very open man. You see it has a very open theme. It's a very American sort of theme. Nagasaki. Goro scraping and bowing. The main theme of the act. Oh. 
and so, so on and so forth. Now they discuss, uh, Pinkerton explains that he's marrying for 999 years, but he can renege on it at any, any time. And then he gives his philosophy. This is, now we call this the Yankee Vagabondo. This is the Yankee Vagabond. And he explains that, um, you know, life is a lark. You have pleasure everywhere you go. Uh, don't tie yourself down. Don't get serious. We've all heard that, right? Here he is, Pinkerton. And then he opens his discourse with this. You're not required to stand. Wherever the Yankee Vagabondo goes, paraphrased, life is his oyster. And then Sharpless asks about Butterfly, and he says uh, that he's, he's uh, smitten with her. Is it love or is it a, just a lark? I don't know myself. I wouldn't know what to tell you, he says. But you listen to this man, you don't uh, have the impression that he's thinking very seriously or that he really has any deep feelings. Superficial. And he sounds like nice. He sings nice music, so he looks nice. But he is actually, the irony is the philosophy that he's uh, espousing, of course, um, is, uh, is in its way heinous. And this is, this is the victimizing of the, of the uh, imperial, imperialist, that's from the people who, who analyze this opera from that perspective, the imperialist with the conquered. Um, okay, she arrives. All the relatives are arriving with her. That's a Japanese song. That taking a look at this beautiful hill and here we get the love theme she enters and is love just like Mimi the whole scene changes I want you to listen to the violins at the beginning of this there it is that's the big love theme. It's going to be repeated now. Here it comes again. It, it continues. This is the second part of the love motive.
So suddenly there's magic, and this is the magic we always sort of expect when we come to see a Puccini opera. Now, you know they're called tearjerkers. You do know that, right? Uh, you're supposed to cry. The Greeks believed in catharsis. It, they did not think you had to have a happy ending. In fact, a good cry is good for all of us. So you may have a good cry. And by the way, if I may, if as long as I remember, when Pinkerton comes out to take his bow, please don't boo at him. <laughs> you know, you th I am astonished, but everywhere in America I have seen this opera or conducted it, Pinkerton is roundly booed at the end. And, you know, I know that's fine in the movies because there's no human being there, but you have to take into account there's a very sensitive human being there who's a tenor on top of it. <laughs> And um, I mean, our wonderful tenor Stefano Secco has a great, uh, great sense of humor, but at the dress rehearsal, he was roundly booed by all those young students. And he just smiled and said, come on, get over it, and they did. But um, the, tell your neighbors, don't boo Pinkerton, because uh, yes, Pinkerton's a bad guy, but the singer isn't, okay? <laughs> okay, so we're, we're, all, we're all, as an audience, falling in love with, with uh, Chocho-san. That's Renata Tepaldi, if anybody's interested. Okay, there's a high note, and then there it is. And here's another, <laughs> cut it off. Uh, I like to do that, by the way. Sometimes they hold them too long. Uh, you hear that little, that's another Japanese melody there. And Chocho-san meets Pinkerton. Pinkerton's actually quite taken with her. And then she starts to show all of her belongings. After all, she brought everything she owns up to the house because it's going to be her house. That's where she's going to live now. Um, he asks a lot of questions. And then at one point, he asks, what about your father? He meets the mother. He says, what about your father? And this is the answer. Dead. Now listen to that. Listen to this theme again. And your father, Morto, another Japanese belly. This will become associated with the father who had for honor to commit suicide, and it will recur at several times at the opera, most important of all, in the, uh, in the third act when she will take her, the sword with which her father committed suicide and prepare her own suicide. Uh, so um, that's, a, that's a theme that's going to come back quite, quite often. One. So that's all done. Here's the Imperial Commissioner. Very official. And here's the relatives. And Puccini writes a very jocular, almost a joke, not very serious. He likes to do that. You remember the sacristan in the first act of Tosca, even though it's a very serious opera? A little comic relief. All the relatives provide that for us in this opera. And so, to the, to the love theme, Pinkerton says, come, come along, my love. Viene amor mio. You should know all those notes, but no, come, my love, amor mio. And then he starts to look at all of her belongings, and he asks, um, what's that? And she puts it aside. She doesn't want him to see it. And he says, and I can't see that? It's the knife. You can hear it cuts. It has an edge to it. 
She falls silent. Pinkerton doesn't understand, and Goro says, That's the knife her father used to commit suicide. And you hear the very far in the distance, very softly, you hear the theme of that death. Now, you know, I think it's the principle of Chekhov. Uh, been paraphrased many times, but if there's a rifle on the mantelpiece in Act 1, you have to use it in Act 5. Uh, it, there's many versions of that. Okay, the principle is, uh, for be a good writer, don't introduce a detail if you're not going to use it. And so this is, this, is a, this is a great example of that. We get to know about this knife and what it did and the father who committed suicide because she's going to use it in the last act. So uh, that, that is the importance of that, of that moment. Now. Everybody quiet now. The wedding. Nice Japanese bells. Benjamin Franklin Pinkerton And in honor of that The Star Spangled Banner reappears there when he, he's referred to as the, uh, the lieutenant on his ship now uh, the marriage is the marriage is accomplished in no time at all, and the celebration would start. But Uncle Bonzo comes comes and shows up. You know, somebody the ghost at the feast, somebody who comes and ruins it all. Great operatic uh, favorite. You know, Banquo appears in Macbeth. Lu Lucia di Lammermoor comes down on a wedding night, full of having murdered her husband. You know that kind of thing. The party is interrupted, and Bonzo uh, curses her. And here he is. Now listen to the themes in the orchestra because they're all going to be recurring. The curse of the Bonzo, the rejection of the relatives. Dum, ba -bum, ba -bum. That's going to be all over the second act. Repeated over and over and over. Same motives. And Pinkerton's fed up and he kicks them all out. But they all curse her first. There's always curses in operas, right? We reject you, and off they go. And another Japanese theme, and they will all go off. They will disappear. Now that they're gone, it's time for Pinkerton to be romantic. And now you get this romantic. Listen to the strings in the background. That's the wedding night theme. 
as distinct from love. She says, I'm rejected, but happy. And as, as this, but now, now we have a great love duet, a really great love duet. Now, Puccini, uh, Puccini loved love and expressing that first meeting between, for instance, Mimi and Rodolfo, such a special love. This is a great love duet. I think it's out of proportion to the lack of depth of Pinkerton, but he gets into the mood. And so it's uh, like uh, almost, almost Wagnerian in its, um, in its uh, intensity. It, and you won't need it explained to, to you. This is pure romance. Now this is all gonna disappear. The romance will disappear in act two. Another moment. In 1903, every composer wanted to write his version of Tristan and Isolde, a great, great, passionate love duet. And so Puccini does just that. And there's your love theme, which you heard before. goes on in that strain. Uh, this is one of the most beautiful love duets in the literature. Now, when you are, when you, when you're all finished with that, you get your intermission, and you come out because two or three years are going to pass by now. Because when we come to Act Two, um, Pinkerton's gone. He's never come back. Uh, there's a little boy. We're going to meet that little boy midway uh, in the in the act. But first, we are going to see the we, we get the. Another Japanese melody. Here is the motive of waiting, 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 waiting. Oppressive, repetitious. on her mind. And then on and on and on. Endless waiting. Now, she asks Suzuki, this is how the motives work now. See if you can identify them. She asks, why did the consul give me this house and put padlocks on it if he didn't want to protect me? And so we hear Sharpless's motive. And then when she's... And she speaks of... And there you 
you get your love theme. Your love theme comes back. And you will notice, you'll be able to read the surtitles. You will be able to start putting together motive and motivation. brings you right up to the moment where you get Un Bel Di. Everybody knows Un Bel Di. You hear it on elevators sometimes and in lobbies of hotels and things like that. Now, what is Un Bel Di all about? She is fantasizing the return of Pinkerton. And it's very human. We all do it. You know, we've all been separated. Sometimes it's about love. Sometimes it's about other things. But that replaying a, 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 a reunited scene. I am reunited with my loved one. And that's what Unbildi is all about. This is Maria Callas, by the way. almost all of the motives at this point. Uh, so I'm going to let you go because you now know them all. You know everything you need to know. Now all you have to do is listen and be moved. You don't have to know any more than that. The story is easy to follow. The surtitles are easy to follow. But most of all, the music does the drama for you. It's, I think it's a beautiful production. I hope you enjoy it. And we hope to see you back again. Thank you so much. Thank you.